Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Welcome to 007 by 7 the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we're looking at minutes 14 to 21, which begin with Bond leaving the Beretta on M's desk and ends with Bond defeating the treacherous chauffeur and demanding that he talk. In between, we'll have a departing moment with Miss Moneypenny, an interlude at Bond's flat where he helps Sylvia trench with her putting game, the arrival at the Kingston airport where he is shadowed by a mysterious man in sunglasses, the evasion of a photograph by a young Jamaican woman, and a fight with a fast-driving chauffeur. And today uh, joining us is Aaron Hamer-Beck, teaches film studies at the Kansas City Art Institute and the University of Missouri-Kansas City. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. So we, we always start by asking about uh, your personal history with James Bond. <laughs> Do you remember the first James Bond movie you saw? You know, what's I, I've been thinking about it, and I've been trying to pinpoint um, the you know single moment when I first started watching James Bond. But like my parents were such big James Bond fans. I mean, they loved you know the British Invasion, all of that. And so um, if there was ever a marathon on TV, it was on. It was on in the back. Background. So I have this sort of like ephemeral memory of just James Bond all the time. And they didn't really, you know, um, censor any of it for me either. They just kind of had it on um, and, you know, just if, if it was on, it was on. It wasn't like I was told to leave the room. But I do kind of have this memory of Goldeneye um, because Pierce Brosnan was kind of like my generation's James Bond. And so I do remember... Um, seeing that for the first time. I don't think I saw it in the movie theaters. I do think that I saw it at home, but I do I, I do remember that. It's just one of those things that it's like my dad loved James Bond, my mom loved James Bond, and so it was always just kind of on if it was on TV. So, yeah. so Pierce Brosnan is your James Bond. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, and he's, he's dashing. He's, he's pretty. I, I, you know, I kind of like the Timothy Dalton James Bond though, cause I love the fact that he read the books and really saw him as like kind of dark and sinister and villainous. I, you know, the, if you read the books, you know, Ian Fleming just kind of leaves it open for interpretation so much. It's kind of infuriating actually, because he doesn't give you a whole lot of internal monologue. There's not like sort of a, an emotional um, guide within Bond to kind of help you understand and know who he is. So because he's kind of this blank canvas, I think that that's what makes it such a timeless and fun character um, to see all of these different actors perform it as. And I know that Pierce Brosnan never felt like he truly nailed it. Um, 
but I don't know. He he was my James Bond, so I always think like James Bond, dashing Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> he liked being James Bond. Like he and Roger Moore are both the James Bonds who very much like being James Bond. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can they, see they that. They like all the stuff that goes with it and they like all the all the perks, you know, and there's there's not a lot of internal angst or suffering, <laughs> you know. They 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 breeze through pretty well. Yep, yep, totally. <laughs> So had you seen Dr. No recently or did you just revisit it or where I are you with that? just revisited it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's one of the ones that I remember the least um, because I just, I, you know, I think as a kid, I just, it, it's, it's real talky. Um, it, you know, they, they don't have like gadgets uh, as much and it's just, it's, it's kind of missing some of the um, giant set pieces that they later do. Um, but I think of like watching it now is just fascinating, um, to kind of see where its origin was, um, and see kind of how they were working out, um, kind of the, you know, the, the quintessential and the iconic aesthetic of James Bond. It's, it's really kind of fun to rewatch those early ones to see that happening. Yeah, it's the one that feels obviously the most like an old style movie to me. Mm -hmm. You know, they start getting more modern every one after it until by the time you get to Goldfinger or Thunderball, it's just its own thing. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting to see how it how it evolves, you know. Yeah, it does. I mean, especially these minutes, too, um, like James Bond's apartment and everything. Yeah, it just it does look old. It just doesn't seem to have um, aged as beautifully as some of the other ones. Have you read the book? I have not. I have not. Um, I I started reading the book, um, and uh, of course, like you know, it's 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 a totally different kind of journey. I've read Casino Royale, and again, just it's fascinating to see the the brilliance of Ian Fleming. I mean, he wrote Casino Royale in two months. That's crazy to me. It is crazy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he was so prolific. He had this short time um, of writing. He was so prolific and just, he had these moments of real beauty, but it, none of that really is in the character work he does, which is, it, it's telling. It's, you know, it's it's like he didn't want to get too beautiful with the characters he didn't want to get too you know i don't know emotional with them somehow um and i think that yeah there's true. so much emotion put into his descriptions of places totally. and things like his description of flying into jamaica in dr no is really beautiful and you could tell it's it's the trip that ian fleming made every year and so he had this way of looking at the turtle-backed island of jamaica mm -hmm. as he flew in and so it's really personal and kind of loving and and uh, yeah, he doesn't quite treat people the same way as he treats places. Yeah, it's, it's really kind of amazing. It even starts the, you know, I start, like I said, I started reading Dr. No, and it even starts with such beautiful descriptions. Um, and then you kind of just immediately get into characters that are just, you know, it, it, it's almost like the characters are set pieces moving around and the, you know, the, the, the places get more personality um, than the characters themselves, which is an interesting quirk about the, the books. You know, the other thing I noticed when I was reading it this time, just recently preparing for this episode, was it's, it's so real time because mm -hmm. when Ian Fleming says he had this adventure five years ago, 
Yeah, it was exactly five years ago that he wrote Live and Let Die. And so it's like it's the weirdest thing for Fleming. It was every summer when he'd write a book, uh, he would be referring directly back to whatever had preceded it. You know, Dr. No starts with him, James Bond recovering from the nearly dying at the hands of Rosa Klebb in the last book. So it's there's a weird continuity. Yeah. God, and it's and it's interesting that he was that close to it in the timeline and there there is so much connection to him and his life and his experiences and his feelings and you know emotional responses to things and yet i mean just like uh, you'd expect a secret agent to be he's really just you know he holds his cards <laughs> quite literally close to his chest and doesn't really let you in I wanted to just mention as far as the book is concerned that this section of the movie really only encapsulates a couple of incidents from the book. He leaves M's office with a curt order to go get good with those guns that he was just given. And then it just jumps to Bond arriving in Jamaica. So really the, the next things that happen in the book are his arrival in Jamaica, this interaction with this young woman who's trying to take his picture and then everything really changes because he's picked up by Quarrel, who takes him to the hotel. There's a car following them that they manage to lose. But it's very different in that sense, because before you know it, you're at Pussfeller's Club and we're having a scene that takes place further into the film. So it's interesting just to see how, what the movie decides to do with James Bond's arrival. Uh, and it's quite different than than uh, than the book. Well, the, the first moment we get in these uh in this seven minute chunk here is um, we get the finish. We get the ending of the scene where he's, where he's surrendering the Beretta, right? We got him call him out as he was leaving uh, at the door to bring it back. And we get this moment where bond sets it gently on the table or on the desk and pushes it over. And he's got a little forlorn look on his face in the book. We get, you know, he mourns the gun. He actually mourns it for a while. He talks about it as if it was a relationship he's had for 10 years. And um, even, even sort of asks himself why, or why am I thinking about it this way, this piece of iron and so on. And I think it's interesting because you get, I think Connery kind of plays that on his face. Like you get that just for that moment in the film, you get this sort of set, like he's letting go of something that meant something to him for some period of time. And it's funny because Aaron, you mentioned, the books not having a particular like inner monologue or, or entryway into his psyche. But when they do, it's usually it's often about things like guns instead yeah. of anything more meaningful. So I, I found that really interesting in that part and, and M telling him to go practice with the guns and shoot the turtles down there in Jamaica or whatever they have and all that, you know, a lot of time spent on things like that. And Bond confesses to hating M at that point yeah. too, which is really interesting because I kind of wondered like, when you look at the movie, what does M do when Bond hands him the gun or slides the gun onto his desk? He does absolutely nothing. nothing. He ignores yeah. him. He doesn't I care. Mean, <laughs> it, how do we feel about M at that moment? I mean, it seems kind of cruel to me. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I feel a little bit like James Bond does. Jeez, what a prick! I just gave him my gun and he doesn't give me anything. Well, he didn't even let me take it home. Like it's my. Can I at least retire the gun? Put it in a nice, uh, you know, frame box or something you know he's just like very forceful about this idea about the surrendering the gun and not forceful per se but very aloof for sure yeah it's as if he says nothing to him when he leaves but then in the next scene 
the first thing we hear is M's voice over the intercom mm-hmm. telling Bond to skip the repartee, right? And before he even, actually, it's before uh, Bond even le- gets out of the office, he's already moving a finger to the intercom. <laughs> he knows exactly what he's doing, how to time it correctly. Um, it's a great moment, though, because it gives us all this insight as into uh, A, what M knows about Money, Penny, and Bond, and B, this always happens with Money, Penny, and Bond. If it's first James Bond movie you're seeing, you know that that conversation they had before he entered the office is not the first one. And it's a great moment. It adds a little richness to the movie and, and the world building. I think it's really interesting, like just in terms of the acting of the pair of M and Bond, you know, it, like we're, we're introduced to these characters for the first time. And a lot of, you know, American audiences probably in particular didn't, you know, didn't really know much about the books. I, I think that like when a list of uh, JFK's favorite books came out from Russia with Love was one of them. And that's kind of what set off this like interest in James Bond. But you have these two actors that are playing this. And, um, you know, it's really interesting because we get um, an introduction to Bond being this ultra sexy man in, you know, of course, in like, you know, a a poker setting and a, you know, playing cards, um, like so lavish, so luxe, all of the diamonds, glitz, glamour, you know, that's that's definitely one of the pleasures of, of James Bond movies. And then we get to see him chastised by his boss. And he's almost kind of, you know, diminished into this thing you know it's it you don't it, i don't care that you like the the gun you're my weapon so you turn in your gun start using the modern weapons um and i love what you said about him warning the gun because that is such a great acting choice by sean connery and it just totally like illustrates the beauty of his understanding of the character is that he's playing this sadness over losing this this thing that has been keeping him alive um and you know it's it's probably the the closest thing um to a relationship that he's had with anything and you've got this you know boss who just doesn't have time for it you know and and is a, a little bit chastising and it's so interesting to you know move from the ultra luxe, ultra glorious, gorgeous sex appeal of this man who just moves through life with such incredible ease um, to where he gets all the women he wants and he's impervious to death. And here he is being chastised by his boss, like anyone would be, you know. And he doesn't get any relief, really, when he gets out into the office. When he escapes, he thinks he's escaped, but he hasn't even escaped Mm-mm. because his boss is still haranguing him yeah. out in the other room. Yeah, he, he wants to return to this person who adores him for a moment, get yes. get a little bit of that dignity back. <laughs> um, and boss says, nope, nope, don't even talk to her. Get get to it's work. <laughs> and, he, and he plays it so well. There's that moment where he kind of grins. You get the feeling like this also isn't the first time that M is, has cut them off. Um, cause he's kind of like, well, there he is. There's, there's the boss on the intercom. I get it. Uh, and then Connery gives a, gives a real kind of mellow chow to her. Like there's a little tinge of sadness in it. And, well, uh, what do you guys think about the box? Like, so then he, yeah. he leaves her with the empty box. Yeah. I don't know. 
that's it's puzzling to me um she gives him a polite sort of appreciative look about it but it's an empty box it's the symbolic of everything that bond ever gives her <laughs> like, she looks in it she she does yeah. start to peek she kind of opens it at the end and and i wondered whether she was expecting anything in there or kind of knew it was going to be empty i don't know yeah i definitely don't get the idea that i think she knows that it's empty i i, I don't get the idea i think she's just being polite to him kind of by saying oh thank you thank you james but he presents it to her though with such kind of panache mm-hmm. you know really? he, it's like this afterthought but it's this very gentle handing of it to her it's a very interesting moment yeah to me it's it played more like a kind of faux panache though where he was like a little downtrodden and he's like what I, I can do one little charming thing before I leave, and that's hand her this box in this like sort of panache with this panache. That's how I yeah. felt of it. Sort of like how people will um, put their hand out like they're the maitre d' when they open the door for you. You know what I mean? Where it's just like it's phony yeah. as can be. But to him, it's like I'm going to get in just one little jab. Maybe that's what the the box is about. It's I'm James Bond. I'm still going to be mildly charming, at least. Even if I can't talk to you, the boss said I can't talk to you, I'm going to do something that's mildly charming before I leave. Well, and even, you know, before he goes in to talk to him, she's, you know, Money Penny says, you don't wear clothes like this when you take me out on dates. You don't take me out on dates. So, like you know here here's here's a box oh it's an empty box you know right. it's it's just it's it's basically i think it's illustrating a lot of his type of behavior towards you know mate poaching and you know being being um kind of the the seducer of women um which is another <laughs> obvious trope of of james bond yeah which is a good segue to where we go next <laughs> which is to uh he goes home and we get our first look one of the very few looks at James Bond's private environment and Ken Adams said that he wanted James Bond to be this combination of sportsman and uh educated English gentleman and so he chose to put these our antique pieces of set decoration in there the furniture and I I don't know if you noticed but there's this these old timey cars on the wall mm. of the room. Did you guys spot those? I didn't until I saw your show notes. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, yeah. I didn't either. So, okay. So there's these four or five prints and they're old, like model a motor cars. And there's, it's just so weird. Like I wondered whether James Bond, he likes cars, but I kind of didn't expect he'd have old timey motor cars on his wall, you know? Maybe those were the thing they came with the frame. Like he doesn't even, because his yeah. life is so empty, he doesn't have anything to put in a frame. So he just buys frames that have those, you know, built-in pictures in them, and he just hangs them up. Well, hangs to put them up. So he I, actually did it. You think he does his own decorating? Yeah. Well, yeah. He just buys frames and and puts up a nail, you know. But I I seem to remember actually when I was very young that there was kind of a style of home decorating. Maybe it was going out of style already when I was a kid. Of things like that, though, where it was just like a a, kind of a vague design of something and you would pick a theme. So it could be cars or it could be pictures of bird cages or, you know, whatever it might be. And and it seemed to be like early 20th century style, too. So that's why you would get your Model A cars. I feel like that was something that I saw a lot in the 70s. So maybe it was just one of those things, you know, 
Well, and it's antique to fit with his antique furniture too. Right. So there's there is something old and clubby about about Bond's apartment. And if you think about his lifestyle, he spends a lot of time in hotels. And so maybe he doesn't know what a real home even looks like. So he's just modeling. It, it does. I mean, it looks like a hotel room. It's the same kind of furniture, yeah. um, kind of empty space. Um, and yeah, he's just like, well, I like cars, so I'm just going to order these car pictures. I mean, and Ken Adam is like such a genius in like it, the way that he was able to kind of like pull together at last minute like these sets and and yet still be meticulous like that so i wouldn't put it past him i i was reading the story about um how in dr no's office there there had just recently been this like specific painting stolen from a museum in uh, great britain and so ken adam like did a replica of that painting that actually happened in the news. And he was like, oh, I'm going to put that painting in Dr. No's office. So like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, shock me at all if he was really just kind of thinking like, all right, if I were James Bond and I was never home and I don't really know what a real home looks like, I'm just going to make it look like all of the other homes I've been in when I travel the world and, <laughs> you know, do my espionage, you know? So no, you know, it's, very, it's a great theory. I, I, that's a good theory. You know, uh, knowing what we know now about uh, forgery and museums, I'm surprised that he didn't give that painting back to the museum and they, <laughs> hey, we found it and put it, it still hangs there to this day. Where's my reward? <laughs> no, I like that theory about the hotel. That's good. I think there's definitely something to be said too about, there's no people in these pictures. There's not, he doesn't have family, um, you know, cause that's often, some of the some of the most tried and true shorthand in film is what's on the wall if there's pictures of people you know they got they got people you know and so you're definitely going to have ob, having objects in the uh in the picture frames it's definitely says a lot about James Bond I think well he bursts through the door gun ready uh, <laughs> only to see uh in the foreground some red high heels in a in a in a one of his shirts and not much else as Sylvia is practicing her putting. Okay, with, uh, James Bond's golf ball. Got to got to call you out on this. She's definitely not putting um, <laughs> for multiple reasons. It's kind of ridiculous. I understand why it's confusing because it's there's maybe what three feet between the balls and the hat, but obviously you can't putt into a hat. But also, she has a wedge. She's that's not a putter. She, that's oh, a wedge. she has a wedge. Oh yeah, I didn't notice. I assumed yeah. she had a putter. She no, has that a wedge. is a she's wedge. Chipping. She's, she's working on her chipping game. Very short chip game. Very short. Like I don't. I guess it's just to get it out of the lip of the sand trap. I don't know what it's. <laughs> it could be that she's practicing because it's. It's got to be. I mean, it's tough to tell from that angle, but it looks like it's like three feet away. It could be a little further, but yeah, she's got a wedge, and obviously, like I said, you can't put into a hat that's. <laughs> You know, you put a cup down on its side to practice your putting, not a hat, not a derby. So either she's a very accomplished golfer working on a very specific skill, or she has no idea what to do with that golf club. It's, it's, you know, it just feels like one of those things where it's more interesting to have the hat and just grab the club. <laughs> I don't know. It's, but it's definitely, I was shocked. I kept looking back. I kept rewinding going, I can't tell exactly what wedge that is, but that's a wedge. That's not a putter. And that hat, obviously, makes no sense. Wow. Well, Terrence Young said she was supposed to be naked, that mm -hmm. in the script, she was supposed to be stark naked, 
And they realized even then that there was no way they were going to try to break some rules with this movie, but that was a rule that was not going to be broken. And so they, they adjusted. It would have uh, just been too silly to, I mean, she could have been naked and then you frame her constantly not actually showing anything that would have played silly, right? It's Austin Powers. (laughs) Yeah. That would have been too Austin Powers. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) They didn't know that yet, but (laughs) honey is naked when she gets the shower later. Um, and so in the book, she's naked when she comes out of the water. Yeah. yeah. She's, she's naked only with only a knife belt. Yeah. (laughs) Just trying to get those naked women in any way that they can in this James Bond franchise. You know, and it's so funny because like, women's legs in cinema is just this long history. I mean, I, I, I teach this class in girlhood in cinema and um, I showed the class sunrise um, uh, F W Murnau's um, silent film. And there is this scene where it's a tracking shot of cross legs, just beautiful, lovely lady legs. And it's just so funny that like right then and there, you're kind of setting up, um, you know, the, the male gaze, which, you know, I, I, I kind of hate to just, you, you know, use that term because it, it takes away some of the strength, um, of, of the female gaze, which I think the female gaze is definitely happening in James Bond. I mean, that's why James Bond is always super sexy, right? I mean, you know, Idris Elba would have been an amazing James Bond for that, for that reason. Um, and I can't remember the actor. Uh, oh, he's in um, Ice Station Zebra, plays the bad guy. Um, oh, Patrick McGowan. Yes, yes. He was up for the part. He was. Um, he turned it down because of religious reasons, as did James Fox. They were both They were both morally appalled by, yeah. by it. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, and it's, I don't know. I just, I don't think that he, I don't know. I don't know that he would have brought the sex appeal. Um, but it's just, and it's just so funny to me, you know, because I know that, that a lot of people, when they, think of James Bond, there's always the eye roll about, you know, the super sexy Bond girls and their, you know, barely clothed bodies. But I mean, I think it depends on the director because Terrence Young was clearly smitten with John Connery. He Mm. really saw himself as this, he saw Sean Connery as this idealized version of himself. Right. And so he took Connery who, you know, he said he wanted to turn him, he didn't want him to be a limey truck driver. You know, they were going to turn him into something special. And so he took him to his tailor and then he took him to Paris to his shirt maker. And he did all of this work to turn Sean Connery into this idealized version of both himself and Ian Fleming, I think. And so you're right. Like there's a gaze that is particularly fetishizing of James Bond and of Connery with certain directors. I think other directors couldn't really care less, but there is something about Terrence Young that he is really very interested. Yeah. I mean, he, he sparkles just as, just as much as, as the women do. I mean, there's, there's definitely something I, you know, and I think that that again, you know, from the British invasion, um, you know, it, the British invasion was what it was because those guys were so sexy, you know, the Beatles were just delicious. And, you know, I think that, you know, music was definitely a part of it, but that craze was all about the sex appeal. And, um, you know, again, I think that that's the, there, there are so many parts of James Bond that work and there are so many 
corners of James Bond that you can explore. And so just by saying, you know, it's insulting to women is, I think it, I think that it diminishes the depth of it. I mean, because I was reading a, a scholarly article about uh, how Jamaica was colonized by the British and how this movie kind of, you know, is, is sort of the, the heralding of that and the sort of the, the damning of the colonization of, of Jamaica. And I, so there are so many parts of this that you can explore. I mean, and, and that the depth of these, these films and these tropes and everything that, you know, Ian Fleming created here is, is really worth, worth exploring. And, you know, I think that that's what makes it timeless. I was wondering how Sylvia got into his place. Ugh. And uh, weren't they supposed to have a date the next day? Yes. Was yeah, it? So, so, so yeah. she just couldn't wait. She didn't know he was going to have to leave soon, but she just could not wait. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, what do we think of that? <laughs> I mean, that's James Bond. He's too uh, too magnetic to resist. That's the. I mean, isn't that the whole, what else is the scene for? I mean, that's a question we got to ask ourselves because uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the movie that we're watching. It's just, it has to do with James Bond. And it's just about, he's so magnetic. Now, there's probably a little bit of an idea about, okay, Sylvia Trench is going to be in the next movie and, and so on. Um, so we're going to set up a relationship between the two of them. But as far as this movie is concerned, that's all it's about. He's too, res- too irresistible. To wait a the day. relationship set up was just that he would always be running off away from her. Like right. they'd be, you meet him together and then he'd have to leave her again. Um, but it's funny they don't go all the way because you would think the most perverse version of that, of that would be they're just about ready to jump into bed together and he has to leave. Right. But they right. don't do that. So yeah. he gets to have her, um, but then he has to leave her, right. which I think is a that's I don't know which is weirder, you know, <laughs> which is more perverse. She was supposed to be in Goldfinger, but uh, Terrence Young decided not to direct Goldfinger, and so they dropped her from it. Mm-hmm. I know. So sad. Poor Eunice. I know. I, I like her pouty, pouty lips. Oh, was that not the right thing? It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. You know, and, and so, like, uh, another thing that I'm kind of obsessed with from, you know, teaching girlhood in cinema and, and doing all of this research is that um, another kind of classic Hollywood or classic cinema um trope is girls and hair um and how like you know because even mary pickford like mary pickford it was this sort of obsession with her hair this wild mane this crazed girl um and so much i mean you see you see it in in disney movies like the the obsession with hair women and hair and what i love about this movie is that every girl james bond comes in contact with has their hair up except for Ursula. Um, she, you know, she, but it's still kind of not, it's not wild and crazy. Like it gets later. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's obviously she just came out of the ocean. So it's kind of bunned up, but it's not, you know, it's not in a tight bun or anything. It's just kind of flowing down uh, the side of her neck. But, you know, with, with Sylvia, um, she has that very quaffed look in uh in the casino and then when she is seen um pushing golf balls around in his in his room her hair is crazy it looks like she has already been tossling with him um and it's even uh and i can't remember the character's name the girl that he has the interaction with 
later in the film. Yeah, Miss Taro. Yes, Miss Taro. Um, her hair is so crazed that, I mean, it, it almost looks like matted. I, like, I couldn't stop looking, like, at how, like, I don't know. It just looked like a total mess. And so I think that that's really funny about, like, what, what the film is doing in terms of, you know, the sexualization of women as well. That they're, you know, before they meet James Bond, they are, you know, immaculate, you know, just prim and proper, everything, every hair is set in place. And as soon as they meet James Bond, I mean, just whoosh, <laughs> like their <laughs> hair can't even take it. <laughs> It's almost a, like a prelude to the uh, to the you know teen comedy trope of <laughs> of once they take those glasses off, it's all you know everything falls into place. And in the James Bond films, are they saying this is when you this is the real woman? You know, Bond turns women into real. I mean, we see it very literally in Goldfinger, right? In another way, but uh, <laughs> Bond turns women into real women. You know, I I think it's hard to escape that that's somewhat what they're doing, which is. Uh, that's not my favorite thing about James Bond movies. I'll just say that. <laughs> but what do you think audiences thought in 1962 when they were watching this this particular scene? I mean, there's always a tongue-in-cheek quality to it. And certainly there's a kind of joke with Bond checking his watch and mm. figuring out whether they've got time for a quick one before <laughs> he takes off. And that was bold for audiences in the day. I mean, there was a certain frankness about the sexuality of the Bond films that. I think it depends on who had seen North by Northwest. We talk about North by Northwest a lot and who, you know, and, and the train sequence with Eva Marie Saint and Cary Grant North by Northwest, because I can't think of anything before that, that would have prepared the audience, but that, for, for this kind of a scene, but that certainly does. There's a frankness right. about that scene in North by Northwest uh, at the, in the dining car. And then the implications of there's implications throughout the rest of the movie, especially at the very end of North by Northwest where <laughs> the great implication we might call it. And uh, the, I think the audiences were somewhat prepared. I'm sure there was pearl clutching about North by Northwest. I think, I think even my parents pearl clutched a little bit when they showed it to me when I was like 10 years old, you know, during that scene where they're talking so frankly in North by Northwest and that was 1959. So I think that depends. So, so the Catholic league of, of decency, you know, the, those people aside, whoever saw North by Northwest, I think they were somewhat prepared for a scene like this. This takes it a little yeah, further. That's a good but, thought. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that makes makes total sense. And again, I don't, I don't think that they could have gotten this done. Um, I, I don't think they could have gotten it past the the you know whoever was censoring these types of moments had he not been completely dashing and debonair. Um, because if he had been you know uh, British you know with with uh, you know Cockney accent you know kind of lascivious, um, I think that that would have hit the red light a little bit more than than you know oh well. It seems polite, even though, like, he just immediately kisses her. It's like there's no, <laughs> there's no, like, tete-a-tete or anything, really. It's just walk into the room, start kissing. <laughs> I mean, she she is, you know, basically naked. So, you know, I, th I think the, it's it's clear that she's, she's game. But, um, 
yeah, yeah again, another way that the filmmakers just keep the movie moving right along. They don't spend, they don't waste any time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's there. He's uh, he's on he's on the clock. He's got to get out of there. He's got to get to the airport. So <laughs> there's there's no preliminaries. That's what I've always loved about James Bond too. Is there there's always like a little bit of like a frustration, um, especially in the books because uh, he drinks more in the books. You know, in movies you just don't have time to sit there and watch him down to gin and tonics you know it just he, he it, it, we just don't have the time but in the books he drinks so much and he is you know late for his flight because he's having sex it just it's so funny to me because like he's like these two things make him bad at his job but like they you know they're almost like survival mechanisms i mean you think about like how freaked out he is when he first comes into his apartment and he noted he knows that someone's there and then later we see him put the hair on the on the you know the closet and the you know the powder on his briefcase so he's really you know pent up and um totally paranoid all the time and so the, you know, the sex and the booze, that's like his release. Well, we don't cut to a train going through a tunnel, but we do cut to a jet landing uh, in Jamaica, which uh, Peter Hunt said was one of the few nice days that they had. They fought the weather a lot. And so they had to wait around to get that shot of that Pan Am plane landing in. And then the scene that follows with Bond in the airport, it was the first stuff that they shot on, on the film. And so they were kind of breaking him in gently that's always the trick you know what do you do on the first day of shooting and god forbid the poor actress that has to do the baby is dead scene on the first day of shooting so this this was able to get him moving and and it's all pretty visual as they arrive at the airport you know interestingly enough Aaron in the book he is in such a rough psychological state that he gets almost instantly sussed out when he gets to the um, airport and he even is thinking why am I doing it this way why didn't I come in secretly why have they made all these arrangements for me and they're sending a car for me and everybody seems to know I'm here his cover is instantly blown which sometimes like his drinking and everything else makes us think that maybe James Bond isn't the greatest secret agent after all he might not be that good at it yeah I mean yeah being being you know called out by his boss and yeah, the, the, the drinking is always, I, it's it's always a little nerve-wracking in the books because you think, like, what's going to happen next that he's not going to be prepared for? You know, is he going to be able to take his gun out fast enough, you know, with, with all of this gin inside him, you know, and, and these types of things? And yet he can always, he can always persevere. That's what's so different about, like, the sort of Daniel Craig Casino Royale is that you see him, like, doing the breathing and, like, you know, he can, like, change the chemistry of his body. That's how much of an amazing weapon he is. Um, whereas here, he really is just kind of, um, you know, he's definitely cool, definitely the guy that counts the shots and knows that that guy's out of bullets. So now he can he, he can take him out. Um, definitely cool, but also definitely, you know, um, dealing with with the, the reality of, of his job. There's this weird tension in these airport scenes, because on one hand, he's being watched by this guy who we realize is watching him, mm-hmm. Jack Lord's character, Felix Leiter. Uh, and then. He walks by this girl who pops off a shot and he manages to lift his hat up just to block his face when she takes the picture. 
and so he's conscious of that, right? He's kind of on the game. Uh, and then we see her, and she was a former Miss Jamaica, mm-hmm. um, and she said that when she did the scene that Terrence Young told her to lick the flashbulb. And she was really thought that was really distasteful, but it's totally in the book. It's right out of the book. And that, and you would you would lick the flashbulb, you know, to put it in for to to make the contact better. But of course, you know, he sexualizes the the motion. Mm-hmm. But after Bond lets the two girls into the taxi, uh, he is approached by this chauffeur who we will only know as Mister Jones, who says he's been sent to collect him and take him to the government house. Uh, and Bond goes back in and makes a quick phone call to find out that. That's not the case at all. So Bond is instantly ahead of the bad guys. He doesn't know exactly who the bad guys are, but he's ahead of them. He realizes he's he's been set up and that there's a trap. And there's a moment on Connery's face where you realize that James Bond is kind of happy about this, that he's not wasting his time. He's ready to get into the adventure. Just one detail. I don't believe the chauffeur tells him he's from Government House. I believe he asks Bond where he's going and Bond tells him. He's right. going to Government House, right. which then plays right. later when the guy can barely remember where they're going. When he's like, where are you from? Uh, government House. But right. Um, right, you're right. What's funny about this whole scene and is that it's, it is almost like they read the book and then said, okay, all the things that Bond said he wished wouldn't have happened in this, the way it plays out in the book, where he's like, why did I do it this way? You know, how did they... It's almost like they said, "Yeah, he's right. Let's not do any of that stuff." Now he's that's right. Obviously, Let's not screw it up. Right. right. So, yeah. so they don't have Quarrel come pick him up. They have he's going to take a cab because that's the smart, the more uh, 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 low profile thing to do. Um, other than having the report, the the photographer and and the chauffeur. Now somebody's on to him a little bit, but that's fine because we want that. We don't want him. We don't really want him to slip through the airport unmolested or what the what the hell's the scene for? So we do want somebody's got his number to a certain extent, but it doesn't need to be like, oh, gee whiz, what? How did everybody find out I was here? It's a really strange how it plays out in the book to me. It's actually, no, a, it is, I don't it, know it how to feel great. about it. It is great because they also say in the book, you know, you he's followed and he loses the tail. It's in the book. It's the bad guys that are following him. Mm-hmm. But in the movie, it's great. It's actually Felix is following him, but he doesn't realize that guy's an ally. So... He still has the driver lose the tail, which he does, uh, and and so it's it's the same action with a totally different context. Yeah, you have the bad guys, the driver. The, I mean, that's good. You, you're it's taking really that's good. a great bit of adaptation because honestly, there's no way to um, play off that scene from the book in, in a movie. It just it doesn't play in a movie. It's a totally we, where we have the the mopey spy movie that's not going to play. So you're going to have to completely rewrite this. And one of the great ways to rewrite things sometimes is to flip everything, just flip it all, like make it uh, that different. And it's much more interesting and exciting. Yet it still moves the plot along in the same way. He's still, they're still onto him to some extent, but we get to watch him, like you said, enjoy it a little bit. And we don't know whether this guy who's watching him is a good guy or a bad guy. We've never met Felix Leiter. We've never seen Hawaii Five-0. And, never seen Hawaii Five-0. Yeah. M says there's a guy named Leiter who's going to meet him, but we've probably forgotten that at this point. And so we just notice his sunglasses and he's using the old newspaper trick. And so we know that Bond is being followed. He, somebody's trying to photograph him. And then somebody else has come to pick him up and take him on a drive who was not supposed to really be doing that. So you've got all those things positioned to create kind of maximum suspense uh, to move us into really the first action sequence of, of the movie. 
you get yeah you get really great action out of it you also get the the stakes are raised we see you know that the danger is truly all around and you know it's just it's just like the three blind men in the beginning like oh they're harmless three blind men no they're murderers <laughs> they're assassins and and it's just, and it's a it's a great way to kind of misdirect again what the audience um, was probably assuming, we, we know that he didn't have a car waiting for him, so there is something, uh, so, something suspicious about this driver. But it, you know, and it just gives us a chance too to kind of just drop in some realistic and authentic action that, like you said, John, it just it's much more cinematic than what the book did. You know, equally realistic and authentic is the driving stuff because that mm-hmm. is all. That's all car to car or a camera mount on the car, all done live and for real, no process work. They'd later have to do process work because the weather was so lousy they couldn't get everything that they needed. But this movie really delivers the goods in terms of that fast driving car stuff, uh, including, uh, according to Peter Hunt, a speedometer shot that they didn't get on location. So they did a different speedometer in a different car. And so they have a black speedometer in what really should be a red and white car. But he says nobody notices it. Oh, yeah, you could. I I could believe that that's a a speedometer in that car. That's, you know, I see the red uh, interior, but so it's like, yeah, yeah, I believe it. There's nothing. Yeah, Yeah, you don't think about it. Um, But it's really that especially the shot where Connery's looking back over his shoulder where the camera's mounted on the back of the car. Yeah. I don't know how he keeps his hat that's on. All, that's all I could think about, too. His milliner yeah. is amazing. It's like a perfectly fitted hat. <laughs> that just It's comfortable, but won't ever budge. That's the, the guarantee. The is flapping wildly, and yet <laughs> yeah, but... it stays right there. Yeah, it's funny that, you, you know, Mitch, you said, we should know that Felix Leiter, we've heard of Felix Leiter, right? Um, earlier in the meeting, we find out about that. It, it would have been an interesting move to maybe make the chauffeur a believable possible Felix Leiter. Like I, I kind of wondering now, well, there's, there's an idea that could be in our, our minds. If we do remember that there's this Felix Leiter guy, well, we might guess it's the other guy, but what if when they get to the end of this, he points the gun at the guy and that guy's Felix Leiter. That could have been an interesting thing. I would never believe this guy could be that guy that just the actor is not He's not, con- he's not particularly convincing. I'll just say. I like, I like that he, you know, he takes the cyanide capsule because later in the film, I remember there was a line where they were talking about, you know, what kind of man instills so much fear in a person that they're willing to die rather than face him. And I think that that so much of the movie is built up to, you know, Dr. No, so much of it. I mean, the very first, like one of the very first things we see is slam folder, Dr. No. Um, so like, we know this guy is coming. He like, he, he, we hear his voice. He's terrified in the room with the spider. Um, and it's just, I, I like, I like that, you know, this guy, rather than being caught, rather than, um, you know, it, because it, hap- it, it happens later as well. Like the, oh, the, the girl, um, the, the photographer willing to accept her arm being broken rather than um, fail Dr. No. Um, and I think that that, all of that is really great, like tension it builds, you know, towards, towards this very scary villain. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why the movie's better than the book because Maybaum creates a series of opponents before Bond ever gets to Dr. No, all of whom are very loyal and very lethal and determined to kill Bond because Dr. No wants him dead. 
And so in that sense, there's so much more for James Bond to do before he actually goes out to the island. He's got to deal with this chauffeur for a start who mm-hmm. isn't there. And who's, they're going to have a big old fist fight when he can't get to his gun. Uh, Bond uses two judo moves and, <laughs> and then in an amazing edit, draws back his right fist and swings and there's a full reverse that we cut to and the punch continues with Bond's left hand. And it's you amazing. don't even notice it. Yeah. It's it, you Lightning don't even notice it. Combinations from James Bond. <laughs> um, I will say, you know, you you say he, there, there are these uh, you know lethal opponents uh, throughout. It builds from here because this guy is the least lethal. Totally. <laughs> this guy is uh, yeah. this guy is worthless. But I I think it's a great. It's actually a great moment in the writing as far as how the story structure and how uh, uh, Bond's arc is structured. He needs to be. I think at this point he needs to be super spy again i think we need him to okay he's been spotted he figures out he's been spotted that's good he pulls the gun on this guy he's able to get away from the whoever's following him and then pull the gun on this guy to get information that's good but i also kind of don't want him to take any punches right here like i was thinking about it as i was watching it like is this an shouldn't this be more like an indiana jones scene maybe no i don't think so not here because i think right here we need the you know, the graph to go up. I think we need Bond to have a up moment here because we just had all that, uh, all that uh, uh, kind of dignity sucking from him, sucking the life out of him for a little while. Um, yeah, he gets the girl. That's something. But we need the spy. We need his spy arc to peak up again. So we know, yeah, this is James Bond, super spy. He's going to flip this guy around. He's going to pick him up with one hand and throw him places. You know, he's pretty strong, this James Bond guy. A little stronger than I thought think i believe but that's fine and always adjusts his cuffs and his hanky yep. mm-hmm. all through the fight which is as aaron mentioned that's pretty awesome yeah you know he's he's cool from the get-go but it's not a complete win for him as we will find out yeah i don't know it's so interesting like the coolness of bond um and his you know his his fight craft um, the judo chops are always really funny, but like, <laughs> it's just, there's always so many like interesting styles of fighting, especially in the you know in this time period, um, you know where we have a lot of like cowboy punches. You, you you see you see a lot of like sort of like full body punches and people decking each other out, and he is like even like glamorous while he's fighting. It's there there's something. Um, fluid about his movement um, that that's that's not a John Wayne punch you know it's 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 definitely even like elegant um, in in the way that that he you know takes the guy out and and the guy's hat immediately falls off Um, just he you know he he's not cool enough to fight (laughs) with his hat still on I mean this coat button is still buttoned I mean that's just it's so amazing to me you know just kind of watching that because again it's not it's not this sort of brawler type thing it's it's just you know quick and uh, uh, effective (laughs) I can't think of that many movies up to this point that have had judo in them mm. i mean i know there's the james cagney movie mm-hmm. uh right i think it was called rising sun or something like that uh from the from the f- late 40s early 50s it's a noir movie and maybe there's some i don't know maybe there's a little bit of judo in one of those sam fuller yeah i was thinking pictures. about sam fuller too as being a possible mm. play but oh wait yeah you there did, hasn't um, been um, much. oh what is it 
why am I forgetting the Sam Fuller movie with the two cops? Crimson Kimono. Crimson Kimono. There's a whole, there's a whole scenes that yeah. both of the guys study judo, I believe. Um, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So Sam but Fuller. It's, so of it's course, relatively new, though. Yeah, very much so. And that's kind of cool too, because so you know, again, I just I love talking about the pleasures of of James Bond because the the exotic locales is such a is 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 another reason we can't wait to go with him on his next adventure um and you know if he's if he's that well traveled he would he would know you know the different kind of techniques for fighting um right. that uh you know that that just you know a cowboy from the midwest wouldn't um and so i i think that that's that's what's really kind of fun about seeing and is that the first time we see him fight mm-hmm. yeah because before all we're getting is cool from the su- seduction um, po- uh, standpoint, and so this is the first time we see the actual license to kill at work. Yeah, and so about fifteen minutes into the movie, uh, or seventeen minutes into the movie, whatever, it's, it's it's definitely time to see some action like this. So that action sequence starts about nineteen minutes in, and and uh, it's time We've, we're ready for yeah, it for sure. Well, I can't think of anything else with these seven minutes. Aaron, do you have any closing thoughts about the world of James Bond in these? I mean, I, I love that Joanna Harwood um, was one of the adapters. So, like, you have a female writer working on the first two films. Um, I think that that's really kind of cool. I think that that gives, um, again, you know, just from my, my standpoint, that's I, when I'm looking at film, I'm always kind of looking at, you know, what you know, what are the voices, um, that are, that are being, um, included in that film. And I think that it's kind of cool, um, that they had, um, a woman, you know, she was the secretary and a reader, um, and just kind of asked for, for a screenwriting job and started writing. And, and I think that that sensibility probably helps to, um, create, uh, again, some eye candy for the ladies as well. Um, and, you know, that there, there's always been um, a glamour associated with, with James Bond that's unmistakable. And um, I know that it's, you know, it's, it's definitely a boy's franchise um, because of its cars and, and, and espionage and all of these things. But I think it's also um, every bit as pleasurable um, for, for uh, women um, to watch the films. I mean, I, I got done watching the movie today and I was like, God, I really like James Bond movies. <laughs> and I always just feel that way um, because it's always a fun time. Um, you always have fun watching a James Bond film, even, you know, a view to a kill <laughs> to a certain extent. <laughs> <laughs> even, <laughs> even a view to a kill. I like I that know. that's the one you went to. Uh, <laughs> nice, nice job. Yeah. Here. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just, I just remember in your adaptation class, um, Mitch, watching Casino Royale, because I didn't get a chance to see it when it was in the movie theaters and we were at the Tivoli. Um, and we were watching and just that opening sequence, um, the parkour and him dangling off the the skyscraper, the you know, the the, the buildings the construction, the construction crane, yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, I you know, I just seeing how this franchise has um, kind of reimagined itself over and over and over again um, to be, again, more than 
just, you know, this anti-hero, um, you know, this psychopath, narcissist, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's so much more, it's so much more, it's, it's about so many things. And I love that it's, it, it often comments on social, um, social issues. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's relevant. And so I love that you guys are doing this podcast. It's, it's really fantastic. Cause it's, it's, it's fun to, Go back and rewatch these, and I and I really enjoyed um, taking a look at Doctor No um, without the distraction of families and you know holidays and you know the marathon movie marathon right. on in the background. It was fun to really really uh, watch it and notice all of the the interesting stuff. So yeah, it's it's been really fun. Well, I hope you'll come back and and help us look into some of the other ones. Yeah, as well. if you do a kill, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, no. maybe maybe from Russia with Lever oh, okay, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah, uh, yeah. Totally. <laughs> We're not even going into Roger Moore, let alone going to the end of Roger Moore. Yeah, the end of Roger Moore. <laughs> we got to get to live and let die. I don't know. I, I really <laughs> want to get there. I love that one. Oh, maybe. Um, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. All right. So, um, thanks again for joining us, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun. Uh, John, do we have any last announcements we have to make, or are we pretty much out of here? Pretty much out of here. Just come over to uh, patreon.com forward slash alien minute to check out our uh, extracurricular activities over there. You just have to, uh, it's just $2 an episode to subscribe. So come over there and uh, help us out with that. And, you know, come talk to us on Facebook. Anything that you can think of about these seven minutes that you want to add, please feel free. And we'll see you next time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.